Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Friday, May 16th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there's this series of ads for uh, Diet Coke. Perhaps you've heard of it. It has bubbles and no calories. And here's what some of these ads say. I see them in the subways. Uh, You move to New York with an MBA, one clean suit, and an extremely firm handshake. You move to New York with woodworking tools, an obsession with 18th century furniture, and 18th century facial hair. All right, that's for the Williamsburg crowd. You move to New York with two turntables, a microphone, and a really cool DJ name, Diet Coke. I hate these ads. They are so cloying. They are so what an old person thought of as appealing to a young person. Like, what's cool? I know Beck, Odelay, I'm cool. I love that Beck song. That Beck song's from 1996. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of Odelay. And then I read that they were discontinuing the campaign, and I said, yes, you finally got it. But why they were discontinuing the campaign is that the tagline, and not even of all the words that I obsessed over in these campaigns, you've moved to New York with the clothes on your back, the cash in your pocket, and your eyes on the prize. Of all those words that I just went blech with, the tagline is, you're on Diet Coke. And people were saying, oh, this is like some trying to say, you're on Coke. Get it, you're on Coke. So they had to unplug the ads. The ads were horrible, but it had nothing to do with saying you're on Coke. Anyway, I read about that in the New York Times, which leads me to today's show, which is a theme show. I never really planned on doing a theme show, but circumstances have conspired to thrust a theme show upon us, and I welcome that. Jill Abramson, editor of the New York Times, is out. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about this new report about where the Times should go, what its digital future will be. And then in the spiel, yeah, more New York Times. I'll take it on. All right. First up, David Folkenflik of NPR on the Times. Mr. Folkenflik, to use New York Times style, is National Public Radio's media reporter, and he joins me now. Hello, David. Hello, Mike. So I'm not going to ask why was she fired because she was fired because the uh, head of the New York Times, the owner of the New York Times, the chair of the New York Times, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., just thought it wasn't working out. What I'm going to ask is why did Arthur Sulzberger Jr. say to himself, this just isn't working out? Well, so I actually think the Wall Street Journal had the precise word with the the – it said that relationships disintegrated between uh, Salzberger. You know, this is a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. but the Salzberger family, its extended family, basically controls it. And Ar- Arthur Salzberger, you know, is the scion of that family. He now runs the paper uh, as both its chairman and its publisher. And he was delighted and besotted with the idea of naming the first female executive editor of the probably the leading news organization in the country. He was not so besotted with Jill Abramson herself. She's tough. She's blunt. She's very direct. She's hard driving. She's kind of impatient. Uh, she once told me she had a, a voice made for print. Uh, you know, it, it's not, not a lot of bedside manner. And, you know, let me just be clear. You know, perhaps the most consequential New York Times editor of the past half century is A.M. Rosenthal, Abe Rosenthal. And he was, you know, had zero bedside manner. Right. He was, you know, essentially uh, bigoted against gays. He was brutal to women. He was terrible to men. I mean, 
tough guy. But other than women and men, and also didn't like children that much, <laughs> quality individual, but a great journalist and also I think from a different time when we expected different things of our managers and also maybe we expected different things of the U- New York Times. I mean, it, like you said, this is the most important newspaper in America, but back then it was the behemoth that bestrode the earth. That's right. And it, it is in a different era. So we expect different things of newsrooms. We expect newsrooms to be run more like, uh, co- uh, you know, corporate America, where we expect a certain degree of enlightenment or at least a, a feigning of enlightenment. And, uh, uh, you know, th- there's been this uh, overlay of the question of uh, the role that gender played. Certainly, Jill Abramson raised the question in recent weeks after finding out what she believed uh, was evidence that she had been significantly undercompensated compared to her male predecessor and sometime mentor, Bill Keller, and that also that uh, a, a colleague who was essentially junior to her in the hierarchy when she had been managing at her, the number two, had been paid significantly more than she had been paid at the time. Others have raised the point, and I think this is a decent point, that should it be the case that when a new boss takes over, that boss starts at the salary that the last boss was getting at the end? Is there an answer to that in newspapers, or has that answer changed as the economy has changed? Well, that last thing that you mentioned is really important, right? Because the reality is that she came in 2011, which was a very different proposition than when Bill Keller came in, I believe, in 2003 after the Jason Blair scandal blew mm-hmm. up, uh, possibly 04. And, uh, you know, the economy was just totally different. Newspapers had been sitting pretty and minting money, and they were no longer minting money. They were in a deep hole. Like, the Times has put out a number of statements to be very clear, and I think it's an embarrassment for the Times that yesterday Arthur Salzberger felt compelled to put out a fairly full statement to his own staff saying, look, I was not underpaying her. And look, that was not a reason that I ultimately forced her out. But the facts remain that she felt that that was the case and that she raised that issue. And if you have the first female editor in chief of the most important news organization in the country saying I'm being underpaid compared to male counterparts and to to, to my predecessors, that's a very tough message to be sending to the women in your organization. And although she was not universally beloved. She was respected. And her role as a pioneering woman journalist was very dear to a lot of uh, women journalists, not only at the Times, but throughout the country. That even though she's being credited as being a great journalist, and even though she made some calls in terms of personnel that did did not work out, was she quote-unquote brusque? Did she alienate people? This seems to be the crux of the issue, uh, aside from the pay, and why Salzberger maybe one day sighed and said it, it's not working out. So there are two levels to this, right? So there's first is the larger newsroom. And there were people that she essentially ignored. There were people who said that they, you know, left conversations in tears. She did elevate a lot of women up the ranks so that the masthead, which is really the official brain trust of the newspaper, uh, reflects now more than half women, which is the first time in the Times' history. And so people appreciated that. But people felt that she could be very imperious. Again, you know, would a male executive of a recent past age have been criticized so much. All these things were said about Howell Reigns, and yet Arthur Salzberger, knowing that, still elevated Reigns to be editor-in-chief, you know, a little over a decade ago. That didn't work out so well. He went down in flames during the and Jason Blair personality scandal. was part of that. And his personality and Bill meant- Keller left or still has, you know, was still getting paid a lot of money to be an occasional columnist, and he was a guy who was pretty much well-loved. High, high, highly well-regarded. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Dean Bacay is- Dean Bacay. People love the guy. They uniformly think beloved. Uniformly guy. beloved. A great manner. So it would seem that even though we talk about A.M. Rosenthal being a tough guy, that was a different era. We talk about Howard Reigns being tough. It didn't work out for him. We talk about Keller and Bekay. We don't know what Bekay's tenure is going to be like. But it does seem like being a beloved figure, at least in the Times newsroom, 
is an important thing to the culture of the times. Yeah, and Ke- Keller is not is not actually an extrovert. He's a, a pretty introverted guy in many ways. He doesn't like having to perform a public role. Dean Bacay loves it. He loves walking around, clapping people in the back, saying, what you got going on? Tell me about what your stories are. He's got, a, got great stories and anecdotes. Comes from New Orleans, knows how to spin a tale. And a terrific journalist, you know, a guy who himself was a great investigative and political reporter. You know, he led the L.A. Times, who was fired there. Why was he fired? Because at a certain point, he said, no more budget cuts. I'm not going to do that to his boss, the Tribune. So he he emerged lionized by the journalistic field. Now, the interesting thing is he was her deputy, and she was somebody who nominally named him to that job. But in reality, he was Arthur Sulzberger's pick to be the number two, uh, in part because he was beloved in the newsroom and in part because uh, he – you know, Sulzberger very much saw him as the guy who would be the first African-American executive editor of the paper, something Sulzberger very much wanted to happen. Right. And that was right. how this played out. I think Bekay was always the apple of Sulzberger's eye. Bekay never did anything wrong. Abramson deserved the job more at the time that it was appointed based on resume, based on length of service at the time. It would still be a trailblazing appointment. But – Salzburger just liked Bacay more, and Bacay and Abramson's relationship really frayed, and it seemed like maybe he had to choose one. Is that a plausible way to look at it? Yeah, I think that is a plausible way to look at it. I think that, you know, the question that many people at times feel is that is looming there is the question of the, uh, the role that gender played. Yeah. And whether or not he connects with Bacay, because Dean Bacay and you know, Arthur Salzberger are both guys. They're different kinds of guys. Yeah. Arthur Salzberger himself is not the most sociable creature. It's hard for him to right. connect with people, actually. That's true. But if the relationship was exact opposite, he really loved Abramson and kind of it was tense with Piquet, people would be asking, what role did race play? Well, that's right. And the truth of it is, is the great shame of it is that Dean Piquet also deserves this job. Yeah. And that it's a shame that he ascends in this manner. It seems like to me there's a lot of important issues here, but there's a lot of the chattering class just, you know, going crazy over little de- – anything with a dollar sign you go crazy over. But that's also a legitimate issue. So, you know, how do you decide? How should we decide? What's the important stuff that has resonance beyond, you know, the specifics of this story and what's kind of the palace int- intrigue about what's going on uh, in the hierarchy of the times? I think that there's uh, a heightened and probably uh, wildly overblown interest in what are the internal jockeying of the Times because it is the Times. Right. And I think the Times brings that on itself because it carries itself that way and it demands that respect and attention. And, you know, when it doesn't win Pulitzers for what it does, it feels that there's been some sort of moral slight. You know, so I also think that the Times itself is not, uh, you know, they were very late in only this morning uh, publishing a story that acknowledged the question of gender and acknowledged the question of pay because the Times insisted from the outset corporately that that had nothing to do with it. Well, it did have something to do with it. Whether or not it's well-grounded or well-founded is another issue. You take a 30,000-feet view, which I think is probably right for most sane Americans (laughs) to take. Uh, There was dysfunction in the relationship among the four top figures at the New York Times, and that's a problem for the newspaper ultimately. Uh, And in addition, it shows how difficult it is for even – clearly the liberal, the progressive owner of the nation's People leading want to do the right news thing. organization yeah, yeah. in figuring out how to navigate the shoals of gender and possibly race and how to uh, address concerns that there may be legitimate management issues that you're taking care of and still handle it in a way that isn't perceived by a lot of people, including not those involved, as being informed by gender. And being influenced by, oh, well, this is the way the old boys club worked. Even if the old boys club has been largely exploded uh, and looks very different than it would have a generation or two ago. David Folkenflik covers media for NPR. 
Thank you, Mr. Fokenflick. You bet. David Fokenflick is also the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. So as everyone was digesting the news of Jill Abramson's firing, a 96-page document leaked that also could have a lot to say about the future of the New York Times. This report, titled Innovation, is an internal report by Times staffers about how the paper, or the web version of the paper, should tackle the digital future. It's an existential question for the Times, and one that whoever leads the paper will have to get right or perish Joining me now to talk about the document and the future of journalism, if that's not too grand, is Slate's deputy editor, meaning she thinks about this every day, sometimes two or three times a day, Julia Turner. Julia has read this document. She's thought about it. She says she finds it interesting as strategy and also as anthropology. The report is very, um, very conscious of its audience. It seems pitched to a fairly conservative set of newsroom leaders who understand that there is a grave importance in having a strong digital strategy, but don't quite know how to get there and are a little leery of how going digital first or really focusing on digital might compromise all the things that are great about the times. It seems like it's written. It's written by an eight-person team. It's led by Arthur Greg Salzberger. And it seems like it's written by younger people who really understand the net and are trying to hold the hands of the older people who really love the times and want, want the times to be a great news organization, but are a little wary of some of the newness involved. You can always tell when there are jokes about cat photos, what sort of report you're dealing with, yeah, right? right? This is a report to people who think that BuzzFeed is primarily about listicles and cat photos. It's a report trying to tell them why BuzzFeed is truly interesting and what might be learned from it, as opposed to why it should just be a punching bag and a subject of mockery. You know most of this, right? But was there stuff in there that you found interesting or surprising or interesting that this that the Times didn't really know it? I mean, I know most of this. That's generous. <laughs> um, one metaphor I really like in the report is it talks about how, you know, years ago, decades ago, the Times figured out how to have you know, factories that produced the physical product and trucks that brought it to neighborhoods. And then they hired an army of small boys to to bring the newspapers into people's homes so they could read it every morning over their eggs and toast. The The question of how to get the news to people is not a question that institutionally the New York Times has ever neglected. In fact, they have one of the most sophisticated systems in the world for getting the print paper all over the world. What is a major shift for traditional journalists is the the shift towards promoting your journalism and figuring out how to help it find an audience, whether that's using Facebook, using Twitter, using social media. For very conservative, buttoned-up, tweety journalists, it feels like... Tweety with a D. <laughs> yes, tweety, <laughs> tweety with a D, they need to become tweety with a T um, t- to to get people to the journalism. So I, it sounds like there's some entrenched con- conservatism at the New York Times yeah. that, that it's... Um, braggy or something. Yeah, and right, reading that part of the report, it seemed so clear that the eight-person panel was saying, you should be proud of this. This is a good thing. Don't think of it as sullying yourself. Yeah, I think the tension there is that you don't ever want to think that you're producing lowest common denominator journalism. I mean, this is the fundamental tension 
the great change that digital journalism allows is it allows you to really understand who's reading what. You used to only just know that you dropped the newspaper off at the doorstep, right? But now you know exactly who's reading each story, who they're sharing it with, which ones are getting read 10 years later. You suddenly have a wealth of information about the journalism that you do. And that can be paralyzing. On the one hand, if you believe that you got to the top of the masthead at the New York Times because you have impeccable news judgment, a real knack for training reporters, and a sense of how to cover the world, you don't necessarily want to think about whether someone in Peoria is reading this story more than that story or how to get them to read it at all. One of the things that the report does is it asks the Times to rethink the importance of page one which is an institution, you know, what goes on the front page is a huge decision, huger than maybe outsiders would know. I mean, this is something that a dozen people have a say in, and the person who's in charge of picking the page one stories is a really important person at the Times, and the report seems to be saying, let's think about it a different way. Now that there's social media, modern newsreaders have a sense, I think this is another line from the port, that the news will find them, important news will find them. And I know I have this sense as a reader. If something really important or huge is happening, it's going to show up on my Twitter. I don't have to go to anybody's homepage in particular to find that out. So spending a huge amount of time thinking about how you promote stuff on A1 or on the homepage and spending a lot less time about thinking about, you know, what's the best Twitter line for that story? What photo should you use to post that story on Facebook? It doesn't sound like all the top minds at the paper are thinking about the digital delivery mechanisms as much as they're thinking about this A1. And we have this debate at Slate, too. I mean, we, a lot of senior editors spend time thinking about what the headlines are on the homepage. We've shifted away from spending as many man hours on that as we used to in recent years for the same reasons. But it is, there is a tension. I mean, that is the front, that is the face of your organization. So you want it you want it to be right. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the Times, just an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time is spent saying, will, will this be the front story on the right side, which is the lead story, the front por- story on the left side, which is the sub-lead? But in the world of the internet, that is a distinction that there is no distinction between those. Well, no. In the world of the internet, you would have data about how well things click in that position and how well things <laughs> click in the other <laughs> position, and then you might swap in the middle of the day, depending on how they're <laughs> clicking. I mean, there's there's a lot that you can do with analytics to drive readers to the stuff that they like and enjoy. And I think, I mean, that is the fundamental underlying tension here is who knows better, the editor or the reader, right? And the Times is a very classic place where it feels like it's it's the editor's, it's all about the editor's judgment. Yes, That's why yes. you read the Times. Where the mantra is, it's not the news that you want, it's the news that you need. So what in the report do you think the old guard at the Times, the audience for this report, will have the uh, hardest time digesting or implementing? Well, this is where the sociology gets into play, and you can infer a lot from reading the report. But it seemed that a major stumbling block is that most of the groups in charge of digital design, what they call reader experience in this report, but digital design, product development, Um, user analytics, user data, are considered part of the business side. And there's the classic metaphor in journalism, church and state. I think most people think that journalism is the church because it's more sacred and the business is the state. I'm not sure actually it's ever a sign. Maybe each side thinks they're the church and the other one is the state. Wait a minute. You were the church the whole time? (laughs) I thought I was the church. The point is... I I took this vow of celibacy for no reason. (laughs) The point is neither side in the classic journalism model is supposed to talk to each other and contaminate the purity of the journalism. Um, 
It sounds to me like the major structural problem at the Times is the fact that all of these people who are focused on product development and reader experience are considered part of state or church or are supposed to be beyond the wall. So that yeah. literally people in the newsroom are afraid to even be seen talking to someone who's running their product team or their digital designer um, about new products that they're initiating for fear of being seen as some kind of um, sacrilegious turncoat. Yeah, that's, it, it, that seems crazy to me. And that seems like a hard cultural point yeah. to change. Do you have any doubt that the Times is going to get there, whatever there is, the cutting edge of uh, journalism in 20 years? I mean, this report is is really heartening to me. I think they've identified all the big problems that people talk about across the industry. These are a smart set of recommendations. And they're a huge and incredibly talented group. The other thing that was most surprising in this report is that they have 445 people on their technology team which is astonishing to me. That is a massive number of people. And they talk about a lot of technological improvements they need to make. Well, they should throw some at those 445 people, and hopefully they can make them. I mean, if those 445 just follow anyone on Twitter, I mean, that alone is something. <laughs> they could be a successful bot. All right, Julia Turner, who's Slate's deputy editor. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Mike. Have I ever told you about somehow this idea? Somehow this idea is, and I learned this from Mike and the Mad Dog, it could start off any conversation. It's if you're stuck for something to say, just say the word. Somehow this idea that that cran grape is going to replace orange juice as a popular breakfast drink, somehow this idea that unicorns are better than centaurs, I don't know, does anyone say that? But I got one and it's a legit one and it's today's spiel. Somehow this idea that rude, mean, dismissive, pushy, or brusque behavior in executives is universally seen as strength and directness is a laughable idea. There were two words in the articles about Jill Abramson that were flashpoints, pushy and brusque. I'll give you this. Pushy is pushing it. Shouldn't a boss push? It does seem weird to criticize a boss for being pushy. Though I do think pushy might mean other things like overly demanding or unforgiving. And if the articles quoted by saying she was unforgiving, would we be so up in arms? But they weren't. They said pushy, and so that was seen as sexist. Fair enough. But then there's brusque. In the New Republic, Rebecca Traster wrote, Abramson was brusque and pushy, characteristics not often attributed to male bosses. In Reuters, Shane Farrow wrote, Her management style, pushy, brusque, a lot of other words that only seem to be attributed to women in leadership roles. And uh, the journalist Ann Friedman had an article, If Jill Abramson Were a Man, where she wrote, If Jill Abramson is brusque, blunt, and dismissive, if she were a man, he does not like to waste time. Saying men are held if they're brusque, or that brusqueness is always translated, manslated, to a laudatory term, that is an assertion. So let's look at the evidence. Let's think of some CEOs who have been described as brusque. There's Chainsaw Al Dunlap. There's Donald Trump. There's Daniel Schneider. You know him. He owns the Washington football team. Quote, his style at times has been brusque, most notably when he told USA Today, we'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use caps. Are those good CEOs? Does brusque really correlate to direct and bold? This from the book Anatomy of Apple, lesson Steve Jobs taught us. Mike Scott was forced out as Apple president, a victim of his own ruthless drive. Scott was dogmatic. He did stupid things. Scott was brusque and demanding with employees. Scott was a kind of clumsy parent who tried hard, sometimes too hard. Wait a minute. 
Comparing a CEO to a parent, we wouldn't do that with a man, except we did. We wouldn't call a man brusque. We just called a man brusque. Here's another example. Mike Bloomberg personally hired Jamie Rubin, a former State Department spokesman. You know Jamie Rubin. He's Christiane Amanpour's husband. The article goes on to note there were personality differences. Rubin can be brusque and domineering in meetings. Rubin was fired last September. Robert Nardelli, former Chrysler CEO, according to Business Week, was criticized for a brusque management style. Of AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, quote, it wasn't the first time Armstrong made headlines for appearing brusque and indifferent to employees. And that was not a celebratory article. Brusque is bad in a man. Brusque does not go unnoticed or change to direct just because it's a man. There are rude executives and encouraging executives, and people tend to like the encouraging ones. In what world, and by the way, this is a close cousin too, Somehow, this idea that. But anyway, in what world do people want to work for a jerk? Male bosses who are rude or brusque and they get called that, they're not liked. Male leaders who are jerks are called jerks and they are often fired for being jerks. Brusque jerks, or more fairly, brusque jerks who don't make owners money. Investors want results, but there's a growing consensus among those who really know business that brusque is bad for business. Now, of course, to be fair, the reason that I could find so many male CEOs criticized for brusqueness is that there are just so many male CEOs, 476 of the Fortune 500. And also, maybe there's a perception of male CEOs as hard-charging hotheads because we know the hard-charging hotheads, like George Steinbrenner. Do we know Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, Alan Wurzel? They are some of the very best managers described in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Brusque will not get you to make the leap. So this idea that somehow brusqueness isn't seen in men or that brusqueness is celebrated in men and called something else is a stereotype not based on evidence. So I stick up for men by noting that they too can be brusque. And when they are, it is noted and not liked. And that is it. Producer Andrea Salenzi is assertive and direct. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is an inclusive nurturer. You can send email to us at thegist at slate.com. Even more importantly, we ask you to sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Please do subscribe in iTunes. Please give us a review. Please encourage your friends to sign up or grab your friend's cell phone and say, here's what a podcast is. I think you'll like it. It's only 25 minutes. Maybe they'll call you brusque, but perhaps they'll call you assertive. You're on diet, caffeine-free Fago Cola, and thanks for listening.